Hi, listeners. Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game, and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co slash book club, where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September. We'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at rachelthompson.co slash book club. Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. I am your host, author and literary magazine editor, Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. In each episode, we delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. Hi, Luminous Writers, and welcome to the sixth in my series of special episodes of Write, Publish, and Shine, taking you on that dive into the creation of Room Magazine 46.3, where I was lead editor of the issue. In this episode, I speak with another incredible writer we published in the issue, Vina Ingwin. Our conversation went into a lot of beautiful directions, including their choice to deliberately write about joy as a writer who happens to write about grief and nostalgia. And we also talked about Vina Ingwin's experimental writing, in particular, the brilliant piece, A Nesting of Bracketed Bodies, that we published in the issue, which includes, as advertised, nesting brackets as an element of the work. So we talk about their inspiration for this experiment as well. And I'm delighted that they also read from the work for us. So prepare your earbuds for some delightful fiction writing. But before then, Vina begins by offering some caring advice for writers looking to define themselves and their work. There are many such helpful insights for emerging writers in the episode that I hope you enjoy. Here is our conversation. So I just want to start by thanking you for being here and welcoming you to the podcast, Vina Nguyen. Thank you, Rachel. I found a description of you and your writing that reads that you embody diasporic joy, abundance, nostalgia, melancholy, and grief. It's so exact. I just love it. That's why I had to start there. And a totally apt description of the work that we published in Room 46.3 Ghosts, your fiction piece, A Nesting of Bracketed Bodies. I want to dig more into that piece because it's truly haunting. But first, I was wondering, can you tell our listeners, most of whom are emerging writers, probably often struggling to describe their own writing, like how did you do that trick of knowing what you're writing and how are you able to capture it with that description? Thank you for asking this question, Rachel. It is such a wonderful and important question. So I wish it was a trick. I wish it was a, a quick thing to do to feel out, but... It is something that I came to understand about my own writing and my own life through many years of writing. It also helps when an application asks for your artistic statement and you have to, you know, sit down, reflect and think about what your writing means to you and what you are trying to do with your writing. For myself, it was such a gradual thing. I started writing stories intuitively, and I still do. But I noticed that 
consistent themes would show up. And so then I would start gathering those threads and finding the patterns between them. And I realized a lot of my stories involve grief, unintentionally, but always grief. And I'm like, okay, this is clearly an element, (laughs) a prevailing element of my life. And instead of trying to push it away, because at that time, I remember there was a lot of discussion about how we talk so much about pain and kind of stop there. And so I was starting to feel like, oh, I shouldn't write stories like this. It pulls people down. What am I doing with the grief and the pain? But then I know I was just, this seems to be a part of me and it's telling me something. And so I continued writing, but then I would start to try and shift. And I'm like, this isn't the only part of my story or our stories. When I say our, I mean the diaspora, the queer lives that are lived in the diaspora, I think specifically is where my writing tends to come from and how we embody dualities all the time, right? But often when we write, we will write from the most intense moments and I forget that there is so much joy in our lives. And so as I started writing and thinking about these dualities, I would say, hey, there's melancholy, there's joy, there's grief, there's all of this. And how do all these stories coexist together? And I think when you do that, when you try to look at the fuller form, it just makes everything more whole. It's a gradual process, lots of reflection and thinking. There is no urgency, no rush in defining what that is for you. And I think it will personally evolve for me as I live my life and I meet other people and do other things. So, yeah. I love that. I love both the awareness that you have and then the generosity and saying, you know, in your own time, in your own way to the writers who are still trying to define their voice. And I particularly appreciate the noticing of grief because as a grief writer by identity as well, too, I think that I recognize that and the tension between wanting to tell stories that are joyful too. So yeah, I just love I love everything about that description. And I'm impressed, but also not surprised because the writing you sent us felt very controlled, starting with how it was organized. The title really hints at this. It's a literal nest of brackets. And what I love is that you chose those curly ones that look like the profile of a person a little bit. So can you talk about how you picked that particular form for that piece and even how you laid it out on the page as well? Oh, that part of it is super fun, Rachel. Like, oh, that gives me so much joy and excitement when I think about that process of writing. I started off by writing fragments and very much intuitive. And I just had a word doc. But then I started having this idea. I was starting to really think about bodies. And this story comes from a larger one that is trying to be a novel. And in that novel, in that world, these people literally shed their bodies and they will shed several times. So then I started having this very literal vision of like layers of bodies within bodies within bodies. And then I started thinking about how each character was so interconnected with the lives of other characters around them. And so there was also the layering of different bodies of people 
within each other's lives. It was such a powerful visual for me. And I was like, how do I put that in a form on paper? (laughs) And so I was thinking about bodies. And then I was thinking about time as a construct and how in our own thoughts, time is always nonlinear. We may be in a certain space time, but our thoughts are always backwards and forwards, right? And I wanted to replicate that in the writing. And so I was like, okay, so I would play around with the fragments of writing, shifting them around till a form emerged. And then I would use brackets to kind of show the bracketing of time around each fragment and how they were intermeshed within one another to create an overall form. And I can't take full credit for this at all. There's a writer, I have her book here. I know this is a podcast and no one will see this, but this is for you. I wonder if you've heard of her, Bahar Orang. I'm not sure if I'm saying her name correctly, but she has a book where things touch a meditation on beauty. And the way she formatted it inside, you can see square brackets. This totally inspired me, her tone, the way she spoke about things, very introspective, to me a very ghostly feeling. I don't know if she would describe her work that way, but that was what I got. And then I was like, I love this idea of brackets and the brackets holding space and bodies could be within that space. But then I was like, but I want it to be more intermeshed, like the parts intermingled. And so then I started playing around with the curly brackets. And I'm so glad you caught like the curves are like a face (laughs) or like the curves of a body. Yeah. And I just had fun with that. I'm taking from that. There's more of this with excitement and glee because I'm like, I want to read that book now, the, the entire book project that this is part of or extracted from. I'll share uh, where things touch the link to that book in the show notes as well, too, for people who want to check that out. It's so great to hear the kind of bigger picture of what you mean by the brackets and the bodies of them. Like to me, there was sort of humor in that, too. I guess maybe that's where the joy comes with the grief, because it was sort of like, we're opening, we're opening. Now we're closing one. Okay. (laughs) Sort of like you're on bracket (laughs) tracking as you're reading it as well, too. This one is complete. And then what's the next one that's going to complete? Or are we going to open again? And it was really cool. Oh, it is fun. And at times it's like, oh my gosh, why did I do this to myself? I'm like, am I closing or opening (laughs) a bracket here? Yeah. (laughs) So knowing now from reading that description that you're writing about nostalgia and grief, or in part, that's sort of one aspect of it. I want to ask about why you submitted your work to Room's Ghost Issue. It was such a blur to me. So I was working on aspects of the novel, and then I was starting to come to the idea of like these um, nesting of brackets, and I didn't know if it would work, but I really wanted to send it somewhere. It wasn't finished yet. Like I was still gathering pieces of it and playing around a lot. But then this call, right? This call came out not for this issue yet, but for the short forms contest. And it was asking, you know, like this experimental kind of idea of like playing with form. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. And it was a short word count, like 500 words, I think. So I'm like, I can do that. I can do that. 500 words. So I was telling myself, give it a shot, play with the form and see what happens. And so in that submission, I didn't do nesting yet. I was just doing the curly brackets. 
an open and a closed one to open up a section of each part of the writing. And I had so much fun with it. I didn't think at all that it would go very far in the contest, but it did. And that gave me in Room's contest and it gave me such a boost, like such encouragement that this could work. Like it touches some people out there. Like there are people who appreciate this. So then I was like, okay, I went back to the piece the larger piece and I was doing the nesting brackets and then there was the call for the issue and it was ghosts and I was like no way because the vibes of this piece for me and for the novel is like ghosts galore right (laughs) and then in that call it was asking for experimental forms and I was like no right I was like so excited and I loved room like one of my favorite issues by room is indigenous brilliance I love that issue so much and I just felt like when you get those like goosebumps and you're just like, I feel this is the right place, the right time and everything's converging. I was like, I'm going to send it and then forget about it. (laughs) Not think about it because I know this takes time, but I was so excited and I was just like holding my breath still and hoping that it would get in. So, yeah. That's so great to hear. And it's funny, actually, because your name jumped out at me early on in our process because we'd accepted your work. And then we had this process in room because we have a few ground rules just to make sure that more people are seen in the issue or, you know, get a chance to be in issues all year. And so one of our rules is no back to back publications. And the editor is supposed to send me the Newton, the next editor, the list of people publishing. And I'd accepted your piece and then got the list maybe like the next day or something like that. And of course, we do actually make an exception for people who you've entered the contest and you submitted. We didn't anticipate that you were going to both win the contest and like, you know, to do well in the contest and then also be accepted for publication. So it was just kind of cool. I was like, wow, we're really vibing with Venus work here in in our collective. Yeah, because I was thinking about that too. And I was like, oh, oh, like, I don't know, right? Because I didn't think about that happening, right? That it would be two back-to-back issues. So I was so happy to hear. And I should clarify, you did nothing, absolutely nothing wrong. And in fact, this just happens very rarely. You're, I think it's maybe the second time I've heard of that happening because it's so rare to get a yes from room in general. And you just happen to get those two yeses. But it was definitely, you know, you're tingles, the goosebumps and everything. We're definitely sending you on the right track at that time. Oh, so cool. Right. Like so unexpected, such a gift. That's how I see it. Such a gift. So I wanted to ask you just a bit more about that experience. You talked a bit about why you submitted and the contest experience as well, but just the experience as someone submitting and publishing with Room, did it meet your expectations or what was different about that process than you expected? Honestly, it was everything that I expected. It was so smooth. The process, it's so clearly defined every step for me, what people are looking for. And then the timeline of things like that was so clear and specific for me that it was smooth sailing. (laughs) There was like nothing there that jumped out to me. I think it is so important to understand the culture of a literary magazine before you submit your work. And I learned that slowly. As a beginning writer, I would read some pieces from some journals, but in reading just a few pieces, you don't always get quite a good sense of what are the connecting themes or styles for those pieces. And so in the beginning, I would submit pieces to journals that would get rejected. And I didn't understand that 
oh, it's because maybe this is too speculative or the voice isn't quite right or even just the issues or the themes that you're touching on. So for me, I think it is so important to be patient with your process because if you are not excited, like super excited to see your piece in the community of work in that literary journal, then maybe you are not in the right spot. (laughs) So I think there, there has to be an alignment of like time, like the topics of your piece, and then whoever's working on that issue at that time, it's also what they bring to that issue as well. Like all of that has to align. And I feel when that happens, you can see that very clearly in issue like how it's curated and how well the pieces fit together. And I think as writers, we really just want to get published. And so we rush things and maybe we don't get as excited once we see some pieces published because they're not quite nested in the best homes for those pieces. And I think that goes to when we get rejections as well is it's probably not the best space for it, but that doesn't mean that we won't find the best spaces for our writing later on. Yeah, that's so important to think about that excitement. It is hard when you're starting out because you're just like, I just want to see my name out there in print. I just want to be published somewhere. But then having just even what it sounds like, you know, that experience, I know that experience of being published in a place where it's like, oh, that wasn't exactly where I wanted to place my work, actually. (laughs) And so it's good to feel that excitement up front. And like you said, when the issue arrives or when the posts go up with your piece. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how feedback has changed for you now that you've honed your process more, it seems like, and you, you kind of know where you want to go. And you're also like probably more aware of fit as you're sending out work. What kind of feedback do you, you know, react to? and, And even do you have like systems in place or care techniques that help you handle different types of feedback as well? Oh, such an important question. So I think before you send your piece out to readers, so I have a couple of friends that I ask to read my pieces when I feel uncertain about them. But before I send it to them, I make it clear in my head, and Shaleen Knight uses these words, and I'm borrowing this word from her, non-negotiables. So what are my non-negotiables? Things that I feel very strongly about in this piece, maybe the structure, maybe the themes, maybe the voice, maybe even whatever I'm playing with in terms of grammar and syntax. What are the things that are my non-negotiables? And then for me, the bigger thing is what is my vision for this piece? And I think that's very important because There can be times where you have a vision that asks you to be very bold and to take risks. But if you don't clearly define what that is for yourself and people start giving you opinions that kind of take away from that vision, I feel you're less inclined to stand up for what you wanted. And that can actually, I feel, hinder the growth of a story. And maybe sometimes severely, like I've had that experience because I wasn't sure what I wanted for a story. And then it was just too many opinions. I started taking things away, changing things. And then you look at it again, you're like, I don't even know what this is anymore. So yeah, vision, non-negotiables. And the other thing is, it's different if you're able to have a conversation with the person giving you feedback, if you're sitting face to face. I think that is very valuable because you can have a dialogue 
where you can discuss ideas. And that is a great opportunity for you to voice your vision. And the other person is in a position where they can be more flexible and adaptable and be like, hey, what if you were to do this and this? Like, would that help your vision? Whereas I find like, if it's through a document and they send you comments, it's great, but then there's no conversation. So then it becomes this uh, belabored back and forth. And then I feel the energy can get lost. Or if it's just through an email, that energy can get lost and the excitement and even your own joy for a piece can get lost because you might get burdened down with just reading what's bad instead of, hey, this is not necessarily what's bad. This is like, what they're getting. And maybe there could be a shift here where you can incorporate some of their feedback. I think that's also the other thing that grows when you write more is you get a sense of what feedback you will use and what feedback you appreciate, but might not be what you need right now. I think that sense just grows naturally over time because you will find your voice, you will see what your preferences are, and you will know what you want and what you need more readily. That's so astute to say that. I was taking notes so that I don't miss them for the show notes, but that Ashley Knight's idea of non-negotiables and yours about what is my vision for this piece, I think is such a good question to ask because as you're onboarding feedback, you can kind of get lost in it and wonder, what am I trying to say here? And onboarding, maybe one person had one experience of the piece, but not everyone is going to have that experience as well. So thinking about what is the vital feedback that you can use. And I'm with you. I'm not a fan of just track changes responses. I like to have a conversation too. Yeah, definitely. Because sometimes I notice from experience is something really cool can happen where when you share with the person your vision, they get excited too. And they're like, oh, I actually thought of this. And then all of a sudden, it's not that your vision gets lost, but it like expands (laughs) and you get other things, other possibilities in the story that you didn't see before. And then, you know, if it fits with your vision, then all of a sudden it has this richness that you alone couldn't have come up with. It's almost like the sense of community in an editing or a feedbacking story. I also like feedbacking as a verb too. (laughs) That's exciting. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Pausing this conversation with Vina Ingwin to update you on the writerly love letters I send out each week filled with motivation and ideas for you, dear writers. Tomorrow, I'll be sending out a letter with concrete ideas from writers about living in these frankly horrible times. Our community facilitator, Melly Walker, asked writers in our course community, as we witness multiple genocides in person and or through our phone screens, how do we find healing, rest and repair? So I'm going to share the answers from our writing community members and Melly and my own answers to that question in this week's letter again out tomorrow. Of course, as one of our community members, Jennifer, said, nothing can or should make the horrors of our current times feel okay. So our list is not going to do that. We will give some ideas of what is helping our hearts right now so we can stay resilient as witnesses, which is really our most important role as writers. You can subscribe to my letters at rachelthompson.co slash letters. So you mentioned this novel that now I'm just like thinking, oh, we're going to be able to read a lot more of this one day. Um, So 
can you tell me maybe more about that or just what's currently haunting you in your writing? If maybe you have other projects on the go too. So for this novel, what's currently haunting me is the construct of time, as I said before, bodies and what it means to wear a body and how that interplays with identity and agency. And also in this novel, (laughs) I am definitely not like a scientist in any way, but for some reason, (laughs) I'm like really loving like just space stuff, like astrophysics stuff. So that creates much of the world in that novel where I call them space-time vortices. Really, they're black holes. (laughs) Just a fancy word that are swallowing the world literally like the earth. So pockets of the earth are swirling with these black holes. But I liked playing with the idea of like how space-time would not only just be like the physical space, but like the sense of time would change. And so I was like, imagine if I wouldn't die by standing next to a black hole, like close to the event horizon, but let's just say somehow (laughs) I would still exist. But like, imagine my memories getting distorted, like getting pulled and pushed. And then my orientation, my sense of space and time itself gets completely disoriented. And so I started thinking, okay, for me, I'm going to say when you're close to a black hole, you get this amnesia bit, but you also get washed in like nostalgia. You just can't stop going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards looking at all the pretty things that you want to think about all the time and forget all the other things that, you know, so like, would you want to stay around a black hole longer instead of (laughs) going back out of it to so-called reality? So I was playing with that. And then there's a book by um, Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, The Disordered Cosmos. She's amazing. There was just so much in that book that inspired the novel. Like, honestly, I'm so grateful for her for writing this book. So some of the things I started thinking about is like, what if these black holes are appearing because they're like manifestations of social issues in the world and then started playing with that? What does it mean to wear melanin bodies? And I was like, what if every time you shed something different happens to the body? So yeah, it's been fun just imagining (laughs) these worlds and these consequences and then how they're all connected to one another without really knowing how they're connected to one another. So it's been a fun project that I am working very hard towards and trying not to get stressed out. (laughs) But hopefully one day this book will be up there in the world. Oh, I love hearing about all the inspiration as well. I interviewed Dr. Chanda Prescott once as a Lit Mag editor as well. So I just think it's really cool. I don't know if you knew that. There's a literary connection as well. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so. Please tell me more. Yeah. It's just silly that I can't remember the name of the journal because it's a really well-known, cool journal. But I will be sure to mention it in the recap of this episode and I'll send it to you after as well too. But yeah. Getting goosebumps. That is so cool. Wow. What a coincidence. Also, just like the real literate, like someone who's an incredible scientist, clearly who's winning, you know, now whenever I see anything about her, it's always awards for um, science, but definitely is also very literarily inclined as well, too. So it's super cool. You're right. Yeah. And then here you are coming from the literary side and going into the science of those kind of anomalies and (laughs) space time. (laughs) 
it's really cool, hey? I don't know her personally at all, but the way that her work influences my writing and my view of the world like that, that is what I think of with like literary communities, right? There's so many people I don't personally know, but their work is so important to me. Their work has helped me grow as a writer or inspired me to write, to see things differently. That is such an important thing. And I always think of that when like, let's say my writer friends are like, oh, I don't want to write this book. Like, it's not important. What am I trying to say? And I'm like, you never know. (laughs) You never know. I want to end with our quick lit round that we talked about before we started recording. <laughs> so you already know the rules, which are that there are really no rules. It's, I call it quick lit, but I let people go long or short as they wish. And I'll start with the sentence being a writer is. A writer is a person who strives to see the world in a different way. That is what I think of like for myself as a writer. I think It is where we can have a lot of different ideas about the different ways we can still live together. And those imaginings, I feel, will always influence society in a positive or negative way. But I think it is one of our important roles and responsibility is what world are you imagining today? And further to that is what will liberate you today? What would be a liberating world that you can imagine? because it can become a possibility. That kind of comes back to that idea of joy that you are bringing up saying, okay, well, there is a lot of grief, but also for these communities, I want to imagine a better world somehow too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The next quick clip is literary. <laughs> I'm going to rename this category probably. Literary magazines are? Literary magazines are communities that have a sense of that have like how do I express this that have a sense of the cultural pulse they understand what are the current issues what are the things that are going on it is where I would read stuff to understand what the consciousness of other artists are at the moment and see what everyone's thinking about imagining Inevitably, I always find that what I think I'm writing about may be unique, but it always echoes what other artists are doing. That's our like group consciousness almost, right? And I feel literary mags can be like those sensors that keep their, I don't know how to say it, (laughs) a sense of the cultural pulse, just gathering us in that way and reflecting back to us what we're thinking. I've heard it described as a conversation before too. It's like, because then if you're finding you're writing about something that you've read elsewhere, then it's sort of almost like those pieces are in conversation with one another too. Yeah. My next three of five is editing requires. Patience, (laughs) 100% vision and humility, I would say. So I'd spoken earlier about how when you're unsure of what you want, but then I think there's also the other side of where I feel you can be too sure of what you want and then kind of get in a tunnel vision. So I think humility allows you to be open to other voices and other possibilities that can really help your vision in a way that you didn't expect. Rejection for a writer means... A chance for (laughs) (laughs) self-love. 
Yeah, I, I feel uh, it means that the time for that piece of writing hasn't come yet. So be it like it's waiting for a better spot, a better community, not better, but like a better fit, or it's still waiting for you to maybe hone the vision or certain elements of it. The timing for it just hasn't come yet. And then finally, writing community is? The spine of a writer. I feel like for myself, it is what allows me to do everything I do every day because I know that other people are doing it. And I know that we respect each other's work and we anticipate each other's work, that we care about each other's work. It's not completely like work in isolation. So writing communities are very, very, very important. I think writers hear this often, but I think it it is true. Like you want to connect with other writers, other communities as you're writing, because they will uplift you. They will also challenge you, but that's good, right? A kind, generous challenge, not as in like breaking you down, but challenging you to go deeper or go further with the work. I think we all need that to grow because we're such social beings, right? And it allows us to have different worldviews because like, like even right now, right, the political climate is very tumultuous. And if there was only one chamber where everyone who has the same ideas can live there, then that just cuts out so much dialogue, so much growth in understanding and truth seeking. So that's why like literary communities for me is not just emotional support, but it's also like ethical checks and balances. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel. So that was my conversation with Vina Ingwin. Here now is Vina reading from A Nesting of Bracketed Bodies. Hello, everyone. I'm Vina Nguyen, and I'm here to read an excerpt from my short story called A Nesting of Bracketed Bodies. Some content warnings specifically for the excerpt I'll be reading are abuse, gang violence, and death. My cousin was shot six times in his black truck, then several times more beyond that. You could swing the driver door open and peer right through it. Six warped circles that were big enough for your index finger to sneak through. He dragged himself out of his truck and onto his driveway as the gangsters kept shooting until he stopped moving. We were 23. While he was asphyxiating in his own blood, I was throwing out books. I was flipping pages, skimming words, deciding which books I could no longer tolerate. Their violence against women, their stalking of women, their fetishizing of women. Their lines of words that guillotined women from their bodies. I was trying to heal myself two years after graduating university, gathering myself to return to myself as his lungs drowned in an internal pool of homegrown shadows. Close bracket. I get home from my figure modeling shift late in the afternoon and Sue isn't home. Her absence relieves me, but I don't dwell on it. I make myself a rice bowl from yesterday's leftovers and rewatch episodes of Anohana. During the last episode, I weep from beginning to end, then take a hot shower as I wonder whether crying singularly in our homes makes us better people. I grew up surrounded by women who cried unabashedly in front of their siblings, daughters, husbands, sons, friends, who begged to be loved and understood. 
and no one did. When I'm broken, I no longer want anyone to see it. I would rather heal alone over a hundred years than trust that people won't break and use my pain against me. This is probably why I'm alone in the company of people and lonely in the comfort of solitude. Open bracket. I cry myself to sleep in the middle of the day and wake hours later when no ink of sun is left. Sue still isn't home. I hope I didn't forget that a friend of hers has a show or a reception, but fatigue is an uninvited roommate in my body who refuses to depart even after a lengthy meal. It's disorienting to sleep so much and feel as though no time has passed. Open bracket. On the day of his funeral, I couldn't bear to see my cousin lying there in his coffin, so I hid in the washroom until I couldn't, and then I fled. Tracked 30 minutes to the nearest train station, barefooted with my heels in one hand, attracting stares and honks as I dampened the elbows of my blazer. I wasn't supposed to live this long. He wasn't supposed to die like that. I take it back. Every punch. I take them all back. Let every sin bruise me to a plum. Open brackets. We were in the basement hiding from the swell of summer. The afternoon sun penetrated the large, dank room to project a crisp rectangle of sepia light on the back wall, where my cousin was beating up his younger brother. Then he made horrible sounds when he was being beaten, shots of whimpers and shrieks and yelps like a wounded dog, his thin body curling up on the carpet like a dry pomelo peel as dust motes bracketed him. My cousin never stopped unless he was stopped. Neither dabs of blood spotting the wall nor blobs dripping from Vinny's nose onto his shirt and hands could stop him. I could never identify the impetus for why Vinny was being beaten because often it started with nothing and ignored command, a smirk, stubbornness in Vinny's eyes, or my cousin being a little bored, a little irritated, a little sad. These were nothings to me. Something would have been that day when their mom left them for a life reset. Vinny fought back that day in a way that disturbed me more than the beating. He clung to his older brother's legs and gnawed through his jeans. My cousin swung and thrashed wildly, kicking Vinny in the mouth till it was a pool of red. Even then, Vinny refused to let go. Neither of them cried out. All you could hear was sinew, skin, and bone contacting in a room that soured with sweat. Then, Vinny's small, pointy-chinned face broke into a raisin of sobs and my cousin's expression changed. He was plainly unsettled, a child again, a child trying to understand how this was love. He was trying to parent his brother, but now there was this, another ghost. His hits became measured and slow till finally they stopped. He fell over onto his side as Vinny clambered up him like he was a tree and clung to his torso. He tried to shove him off, but Vinny held on to his brother, gripping tight as he howled. My cousin lifted his face to the ceiling, bringing a hand over his own eyes. The first and only time he stopped on his own. Open bracket. When the inner bodies of trees grow faster than their outsides, the bark splits into ripples. This is what happens to spruce, who don't shed their bark as often as birch and aspen do. They grow old fast.
You reject those articles on gang psychology that claim your cousin lacked a clear sense of social identity, craved a sense of belonging from his surrogate family, and enjoyed the protected violence, power, and control. You won't believe the lie that your cousin was created from an abyss, that his was an existence of absent missing things raised on a deficit of love. How oversimplified that notion is. As though overabundance isn't responsible for deficiency and privilege isn't the sibling of oppression and the parent of violence. You won't believe the lie that your cousin is full of lacking, desperate, and pitiful. Doesn't the spruce show love overflowing as it allows itself to roughen into a mess of tough skin? It says, here I am, shedding slowly so you can make a home in me. Close bracket close bracket, close bracket. Thank you for listening, everyone. Wow, right? What a beautiful writer. And I hope we get to read the novel that this piece springs from one day soon. What I most appreciated in our discussion was Vina's advice to find workshop situations and techniques that help you expand your vision as writers. And I also want to underscore the message that Vina shared that a writer is someone who strives to see the world in a different way. I know from experience, I'm living in this world too, that there's so much pressure to see things one way these days and to take our bullet points of positions from influencers and external sources. So maybe today is a good day to ask yourself how you see things. You could ask that in your journal or just in your musings as you spend time with yourself. What world are you imagining today? as Vina Ingwin asks. You can read the entire piece of Nesting of Bracketed Bodies in Ghosts 46.3 Room in the magazine, available in the shop at roommagazine.com. It's either available still in print or in digital copy. And coming up in this Ghosts series and upcoming episodes, you're going to hear from more artists and writers about what it is to be haunted in our work and more thoughts on emerging as a creative person and staying true to our visions. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is brought to you by me, Rachel Thompson. Sound editing by Adam Linder. Transcripts by Dia Jaffrey. And always thank you to Melly Walker for assistance in brainstorming these episodes and helping put together some content. Thank you all. You can learn more about how I help writers write Publish and Shine at rachelthompson.co. And when you're there, sign up for my writerly love letters sent every week and filled with support for your writing practice and your humaning practice, I guess, in the case of this week's letter. If this episode helped you to imagine the world that you want to have or to seek out joy amongst grief and nostalgia and sadness, I'd love to hear about it. You can always email me at hello at rachelthompson.co. You will now find me posting occasional updates on Instagram. You can follow me there at rachelthompsonauthor. But note, that's not where to connect with me as I don't do DMs or even comments. As I've been on there following the news and protests, though, I couldn't help but pop into peek at my DMs and I saw a pitch for a podcast guest. So just to be clear, I do not take pitches or any DMs at all. And heck, I seldom take pitches in my emails. I seldom answer them because they're not usually a great fit for my podcast. But email is the best way to reach me if you want to engage. You can do so at hello at rachelthompson.co. 
And thank you to all of you who've been sharing the podcast with other writers. I really appreciate you for sending writers to rachelthompson.co slash podcast or telling them to search, write, publish, and shine wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you for listening. I encourage you to expand on your vision, dear writers. Here's Bina Ingwin with a land acknowledgement about where they spoke to me from. I am reading in Calgary, which is Mokinstis in Blackfoot, Wanchishpa in Nakoda, Tuskuni in Nehya, and Kusitsi in Sutena, on Treaty 7 territory of these First Nations communities, the Blackfoot Confederacy, which are the Ghana, Siksika, and the Pikani, the Yahe Nakoda, which includes Bear's Paw, Chiniki, and Wesley, and the Sutena, and also Metis Region 3 of Alberta. And I am a guest in the South Sinai on lands of the El Musina Bedouin. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash book club.